We read from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 25, and our passage this morning is focused in on verse 23 and 28. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and alighted from the donkey and fell before David on her face, bowing to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Upon me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak to your ears and hear the words of your servant. My Lord, do not take seriously this ill-natured fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, since the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from taking vengeance with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be like Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord's a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battle of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of the word, the word of God. Please be seated. We're coming into our second week of this series, Retold. And it's the exact characters that many of your kids will be encountering in a couple weeks at Vacation Bible School. The hope is that we're creating a trajectory for you and your children for multi-generations to be able to have conversations about the Bible and characters and be able to grow together in faith. And today, we look at Abigail. Abigail. Abigail's strength is not from wealth, nor is it from brute power. It's not from weaponry or influence. Abigail's strength comes from her ability to reimagine what reality could look like, to reimagine something better, something different, something unconventional, and then bring others along to experience a new reality. That is what Abigail's power is for this morning. My wife and I are foodies. If you're a foodie, say amen. Hey, no, oh, this is a, yes, this is my people's. We love food. We love it. We, we love spending time eating. And in, in the beginning of our, of our relationship, we used to do this thing where we'd bring each other food and we'd say, try it. Try it. My wife is really good at this. She still does it sometimes. Try it. She won't tell you what's in it. Right? We don't tell each other. We just say, try it, and then the other person tries it. We, we, had, we stopped that game for the betterment of our marriage. <laughs> I found out my wife has a much more exotic um, palate than I do. I'd bring stuff like, try this, and it would be like, you know, an Oreo cookie ice cream with peanut butter, because that's exotic. She would bring me fruits that were illegal in some hotels around the world. This, is, this was her way of, try this. What is it? It's death. 
One particular event I remember from the beginning of our relationship, she came out and she likes boba, um, and I think it's horrific. So uh, she went in and, and I went and got me a drink and I came out and she came back from the boba shop and she had this like green, you know, like this big green milkshake and she says, try it. And I said, because I love you. And I, and I took this huge gulp, huge gulp, because I thought matcha green tea isn't that bad. I've had it before. And as I sucked in this massive amount of milkshake, my taste bud said, Icky, that's not matcha green tea. That's avocado. <laughs> We're still married. <laughs> we made it. Now, for those of you who've had avocado milkshakes or avocado smoothies, say amen. Yeah, you know it's good. You're like, Pastor, what's wrong with you? This is the best milkshake in the world. For those of us who'd rather our avocados not be milkshake, but guacamole, the way the Lord intended it, amen, church? It's a, it's a real, like, life-changing experience because, like, it's going down, and then my palate was angry. They said, how dare you ruin avocados like this? You've abused these things. How dare you? And then, then, then the other side of my palate was like, God bless you. This is yummy. I have to admit, it's really good. My wife brought me into a reality that was not mine. And she helped me to reimagine something that I could have never otherwise believed would be possible. Abigail does this in this particular passage. She is God's female agency of noncompliance to a broken system. She steps forward into this moment and begins to live out and reimagine what the reality of the situation could look like and then acted upon it, moving people with her. So let's recap this particular passage, this, this story. In the chapter of 25 here, Samuel just dies. As Samuel passes away. There's a huge vacuum now of leadership, right? There's no prophet. And so they're having problems because who's going to take his place? This is not just a vacuum of leadership for the land, but it's a vacuum of leadership and security for David, who was anointed in chapter 16 to be the king. But here we find him in chapter 25 running from Saul because Saul is still in charge. Now there's no longer a prophet to help him through his process. He's just running along. He's supposed to be king, but he's not king. Now there's a leadership vacuum, and he's got a problem. He's throneless, he's homeless, and he's hungry. He's with his very few bandits who would come along with him on this journey. And so they're beginning to move around, but they don't have a home. And so they're, they're exchanging some protection of shepherds for whatever the shepherds would give them, food, lodging, uh, clothing, and wool. And this is how they, they kept moving and trying to keep above it all. Now they go down to the wilderness, and as they're down in the wilderness of Paran, there is a rich, there's a wealthy landowner by the name of Nabal. Nabal is is enjoying the ceremony of shearing. This is a time in the season where they shear the, the sheep, you know, and, and it's, it's really exciting. It's like, hey, we're, we're again celebrating prosperity and the ability to trade and, 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 you know, and flourish. And so they're there. There's a huge banquet. But Nabal, his name means fool. 
Could you imagine if your name was Fool? Mercy. Talk about top five names of worst names ever, right? Fool. I mean, I'm not one to talk. My name's Icky. <laughs> Could you imagine being me? You know how many times people try to uh, pronounce my name correctly and mispronounce it just because they don't want to say Icky? Um, is that Ikai? No, it's not. Does it, does it say Ikai? It says I-K-I, Icky. Everybody say Icky. Yeah, simple, right? Could you imagine what my parents were thinking? Let's name him John. How about Tim? Oh, Icky. This is Icky, definitely. <laughs> His name's Fool. He's surly. He's mean. He's arrogant. And maybe he feels rightly so because he's wealthy. He's entitled. He's got his stuff. He owns the land and the people on the land and the, and the stuff and the things and all of that livestock. This is him. This is his, uh, his, this is his riches. But in verse 3, we're introduced to our heroine, Abigail, who according to the author is clever and beautiful. Turn to uh, someone next to you and say, hey, you are clever and beautiful. <laughs> Doesn't that feel nice to be called clever and beautiful? Some of you just just laughing now for no reason. Shucks, I am clever and beautiful, aren't I? The text recounts her as clever and beautiful, and according to uh, the community of uh, biblical text Hebrew scriptures, she's one of the top four most beautiful women in the Old Testament. She's clever as well. So David hears about Nabal, and he says, okay, let's, let's uh, send a couple of our men. Men, go over there and tell Nabal, because we had taken care of their shepherds when they were out in the fields. Wish him great, great tidings and, and a peace greeting, and, and, then, and then ask him, because we had such great relationships in the fields, if he would give us something to eat. Give us some things for us to take care of our low resources. And so these 10 men went, and they saw Nabal, and they were there at the shearing ceremony, and they begin to uh, greet Nabal. Hey, Nabal, blessings be unto you, peace unto you. Your son David uh, uh, asks if there might be any blessings for us to take. And Nabal turns around and says, I don't remember a David. I don't know who David is. Nabal, in his arrogance and in his wealth and in his, his entitlement, at this point recognizes that David is struggling. He doesn't need to care for David. He's got what he needs. And so he sends them back rejected. They go back, and David is so upset. David is irate that he tells the men, get your swords, and we will return, and by the next morning, all in the land of Nabal will be dead. Here is the story. You've got one guy who feels entitled to his stuff and doesn't want to share, and another guy who's offended because he helped him once upon a time, so he's feeling dejected, and because he's feeling hurt, he's coming over to this guy's property, and he's about to wipe out innocent lives because his feelings were hurt. His feelings were hurt. You got toxic masculinity all over the place here. 
One guy puffing his chest, another guy flexing his muscles. And if we're not careful, we would be tempted to get distracted by these two men. We might get distracted by David's power. We might get distracted by Nabal's wealth. We might get distracted by David's force and strength. We might get distracted by Nabal's influence. And these two go back and forth and back and forth. And if we get too distracted, we might miss the beautiful gem of Abigail's story in here. But you know what? This isn't too far away from our contemporary world. How often are we distracted by influence and by wealth and by entitlement and by the need for, for, for us to have things that we believe we should have? It's distracting. But the real story here, if we shift our focus to Abigail, combats both of these parties with a response of radical hospitality, deep humility, and profound graciousness. Her expected role in this place, as Abigail, is to go speak to Nabal and ask Nabal to make a decision. She's, her job is to coax Nabal to change his mind, to uh, sing to Nabal, to beg, Nabal, uh, uh, beg him to change his mind or to move for safety or defense. And then she is to, in her role, sit back and let what happens, happens. And maybe that means violence and death upon their camp, including herself. Or maybe that means that she gets shifted into another group of people where men get to decide her fate. But this is her role for the time that she lives. Abigail's world is violent, it is fragile, and it is dominated. So what do we expect Abigail to do but do what she's supposed to do? However, in verse 18, Abigail does something different. The author declares that Abigail hurried and immediately sent ahead of her 200 loaves, two wineskins, five sheep ready dressed, five measures of parched grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. She didn't ask Nabal for permission. She didn't uh, talk to his elders. She didn't ask for anyone's uh, uh, approval to do this. She just moves forward into this action. This is not the standard protocol for someone like Abigail. She's not supposed to do that. This is not her role to play, but she takes the mantle into her own hands and controls the plan. She moves swiftly and independently. She approaches David proactively. And while she speaks with graciousness, she's in control of the conversation the whole time. Old Testament professor Juliana Classens points out, Abigail is portrayed in this narrative as a woman in control, a woman who acts independently, so resisting the patriarchal strongholds of her society. She does not allow her circumstances to dictate what will happen to her and to all the people she represents. Instead, she reimagined a better way forward and worked towards its reality. She didn't shy away from this moment. Hmm. A couple weeks ago, the pastoral team, we got together and we took a day retreat where we could pray, 
where we could dream, where we could imagine, where we could debate, and where we could resolve. And the day was full of things like eating and laughing and work. Then in the afternoon, I planned a surprise, uh, surprise little field trip where I took the team to an escape room. Has anyone here done escape room before? A couple of you, some of you are like, what is an escape room? An escape room is a fortified room that you come into. It might have three or four rooms or just one room, and they lock you in this room for an hour. And for that hour, you have to figure out the clues to unlock puzzles that will unlock keys that will unlock doors, and eventually you unlock enough of, uh, unscramble enough of these puzzles to unlock the door to get out. And so this is us, minus our amazing Bev. We come to the uh, escape room, and there was no escape rooms of detective work left, so I got one called the clinic. And it happened to be a horror escape room. <laughs> it's a great place for pastors to be. We go into the room, and they lock us in there for an hour, and in the 40, first 45 seconds, Pastor Devo says, let's just ask for clues and get out of here. So no, Pastor Devo, we got to push forward. Pastor Steve, is the, he loves solving problems, so he's not letting any of us call anybody. He wants to figure this out. Pastor Raywin is keeping the team together, keeping us pushing forward. Look at, look at Pastor Raywin. What a sweet soul that woman is. Look at how small she is compared to the rest of us. She takes lead. She's fine. She's like, hey, no, we, can, we got this. Let's go. Let's go. She's encouraging Steve. We can do this. Come on. We get into the next room. We, we unlock the first room. We get into the next room, and it's got two jails, and one of the jails is open. Otis and I go inside the jail, and um, we're pushing around. Otis figures out how to open, unlock the other jail door, which leads into the other room, but as he does that, unfortunately, he locks him and I into the jail. So now Otis and I are stuck in this jail, and we're looking um, across where they go in, and nothing scary has happened yet. But this is where it turns. The jail door opens, and Steve goes in, Devo follows in, Raywin's on her way, and, 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 and Ben's going, and I, all I can hear is Ben. Can I tell you, there's nothing more glorious to my spirit than hearing Ben laugh. And he's laughing the whole time because he's scared the whole time. <laughs> he's like, oh, it's about to get real. It's real in here. I hear him yelling. I hear him yelling in the other, oh my Lord, it's real, this is it. He comes back out, I'm like, why are you coming back? He's like, it's real in there, it's crazy. He goes back in and I hear him laughing, ah, this is crazy. We get out, we eventually all get out. Afterwards, we're kind of reviewing what happens and everyone says, yeah, so when we came to that first door, a dummy fell from the sky and swung out. And Pastor Ben grabs Pastor Raywin, puts her in front. And he's just like, ah, ah, ah. I said, Ben, look at you compared to Raywin. You just grabbed that poor little girl. He said, yeah, it was a low point. It was a low point. It was a low point in my life, he said. I could imagine that moment because if, I, if it was me and Ben going in and Ben grabbed me, I would have grabbed him back. And then, like, we'd have collapsed the whole escape room and they would have had to call 911 to pull us all out of the rubble. Raywin's smiling. You all know Pastor Raywin. Just the sweetest soul ever, you know, sharp as a tack. I said, what happened, Raywin? She says, you know, you know what? It didn't bother me at all. I was in it in the moment, 
and I was there to do it. She said, I had no problem being in the front. And I thought, man, talk about being in the moment, right? And then I looked at Pastor Ben and I said, shame on you. <laughs> Abigail responds to the cacophony of a broken world with no imagination for something better by showing up in the moment. It's frightening and things are loud and it's crazy. And think about this. She's on the brink of death. It is inevitable for her that she will be wiped out and all of her people. Not only that, but she doesn't get the right to speak to the anointed king. She's a woman. She is taking every risk possible. But in her womanness, she decides that there is a better way to resolve this than through violence and war. And oh, that the church could hear her words. Oh, that we could see her process through this. She doesn't wait or delay a minute. She immediately moves to the situation, resolved that something better, that something good, that something right would come from this. She reimagines what a new world would look like, and then she put it into work. She opens David's eyes to the future kingship and to, to keep trusting in God through his process. While he is homeless and while he is hungry and while his men are sick and tired and laden, she reminds him that there's a future for him full of potential. Can we, the church, gather around those who have not quite reached that place and also be the same bolstering spirit to remind each other that while you are here in this moment, there is a moment God still has planned for you ahead. She does this. She opens David's eyes with her conversation. She helps him to see a different way and the inappropriateness of his soon-to-be actions. How unfair and how wrong it was for him to wipe out a land of people because he felt offended. In fact, verse 33, blessed be your good sense and blessed be you who kept me today, David says, from blood guilt and from avenging myself by my own hand. She turns the tide and saves lives she prophesies of the king. God's noncompliance to the ways of this world is clear in Abigail. Judith Butler puts it this way. She stepped outside of her predetermined role and resisted the framework within which war is waged. Little Abigail does this. Not the wealthy one. Not the powerful one. Not the one with influence not the one with, with force. It is the sweet, clever, beautiful Abigail who changes the tide of the world. She was prophetic not just because she could see David's bigger role someday. She was prophetic because even under the maddening pressure of the social ontological role she was in, she could imagine something different something better, something that wasn't going to end with violence or end with war or end with guilty bloodshed. She saw a better way and then acted on it. As the church, we must not only live and operate in this world, but help to reimagine what a better world looks like and then act on it. One of our, favorites, one of our family's favorite songs is This World Is Not My Home. Have you heard that song? 
This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We sing this song all the time in our home. Every Friday night, we sing it. We sing it in English. We sing it in Tongan. The kids sing it in a language we don't understand because they don't speak either. We'll sing it with praise songs. We'll sing it with hymns. And then we'll, we'll always come to this song. You know, and this song uh, talks about like somewhere beyond the blue. And I, and I think about the, the imagination that causes us to think of a place that is beyond the blue, this glorious blue, this new Jerusalem that happens to be here on the new earth with this blue sky. And if I'm imagining that that's what the new earth is going to look like with a glorious blue sky, then I must live a life today that practices taking care of my blue sky. I must have an eco-theology that speaks out against the inappropriate use of the world that I live in because I'm here and I can imagine a new Jerusalem that is beautiful. And if I can imagine that new Jerusalem that's beautiful, then I must live this place and treat it as beautiful. May we talk about the home. Someday we'll all be going home, song says. If I could imagine a home someday where everybody gets a home, right? Where Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, people. Come on. In my Father's house are many mansions. Yes, uh, more, more like rooms, more like dorm rooms. I'm sorry to break your heart. It's going to be horrible. <laughs> Where's my mansion? It's uh, the dorm room to the left. No! Four years of boarding school, I can't. <laughs> In my father's house are many mansions, are many rooms. If I can imagine a world where, where everyone gets a place they can call home, a place that is their room, that is their abode with Jesus, if I can imagine that as the new place in the new world, then I must begin to practice it here in this world, seeking to give our friends without homes places to live. I just want to say how proud I am of this church. If you're visiting with us, you're welcome to like the most amazing place ever. I'm about to share why here in a second. A couple weeks ago, I got the wonderful honor and privilege of rolling down here a couple blocks, just down the street here, with these pastors to um, witness the groundbreaking of some homes just down the street here that's called, I don't want to get it wrong, Vista de la Sierra. Everybody say, Vista de la Sierra. Vista de la Sierra. This is the groundbreaking of a place that will be beautiful new communities located in La Sierra neighborhood, which offers 79 affordable apartment homes for individuals and families with household income qualifying maximums as various set aside ranging from 30 to 60% of the area median income. That means we're creating a space for people who might otherwise not be able to afford a home to have a home. Let the church say amen. 39 apartment homes will be reserved as permanent supportive housing for individuals and families who are experiencing homelessness. I'll say that again. Experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness with wraparound services. We're not just going to give them a home. We're going to wrap services around them to help them alleviate the situation of being homeless. May the church say amen. Wow. That's what you and I are doing. Why? Because, because this church reimagined that this world could do better for these of our community. Last year, University Church did that. 
I didn't do that. I got to go and hang out and take pictures. I was like, hey, you're welcome, world. Last year, university, church, you reimagined that. Pastor Chris, she reimagined that. Pastor Steve, he reimagined that. The team, the, uni the, the university, the conference, the union, and as a community together, we as one body, we reimagined what this world could look like and do and move forward. As we're approaching July 4th, celebrations will be going off, fireworks, legal and illegal will be going off. Barbecues will be happening. It might be a great reminder of us this season to be Adventist Christian and to be an American means that we'll always stand in the peculiar tension between the framework that we are weaved into as citizens of this country and all the experiences and the reality that comes with that And also, that we are deeply called to reimagine a better world and then act on it. Abigail acts, not because it's the safest thing to do, not because it's the most comfortable thing to do, not because she was sure that the plan would work out perfectly or just right, she acts because she believed that there is a better world. There is a better way. And that she would do all that she can in her power to make that happen. She would take every risk possible to see that reality come to fruition. Church, may we, against all odds against our comfortable social ontology, against our very nature of the roles that we feel entitled to. Reimagine a better world and pour our lives into it to make it a reality.